Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Professor Richard Salzman. Before I even get into introducing Professor Salzman, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone who's joining us on Zoom to ask us questions there in the little Q&A icon. Or if you're on Facebook, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, just type your questions right on in to the comment section and we will get to as many as we can. Um, but we, we are gonna keep it to about an hour. So, uh, so again, um, welcome. Uh, Dr. Richard Salzman is a lecturing fellow of political science at Duke University. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at a, uh, IER. He published Golden Liberty in, uh, well, last year, and uh, his work is featured in um, Perspectives on Ayn Rand's Contributions to Economics and uh, Business Thought. Welcome, Professor Salzman. Very good to be here. Thank you, Jennifer. So um, I was intrigued uh, by a lecture that you recently hosted uh, in an online um, class that you have for students, uh, your markets and morals, which I've been grateful to be able to uh, sort of audit some of those. And um, in particular, a, a couple of weeks back, you did one on a very provocative topic, I thought. Um, it was uh, policing for good or ill, defund, defend or defund. Um, right. And it was quite the lively uh, discussion. So before we even kind of get into the, the reading materials and some of the topics that, um, that you covered and that we'll cover today, let's maybe just take a, a step back uh, and talk about from a philosophical point of view, um, why this is such a, a, a hot topic, uh, not just because of, of recent violence, because of Black Lives Matter, but because of the very fundamental issue of, of racism. How do, how do you regard it? How, how should one regard it from a, a philosophical and indeed an, an objectivist point of view? Well, philosophically, I could go at this, I think, philosophically, and some of that session, if you recall, was also empirically. So that's important too, just to ground your arguments and facts. But I would say philosophically, the way I look at this is policing is a fundamental government function. And if uh, capitalism is the system of individual rights, such that government's sole function is to protect those rights, you know, the typical functions, this is as opposed to the purpose of government. So we distinguish the purpose of government is to protect individual rights. Now, how do they actually do that? How do they carry it out? The functions standardly have been military defense, courts, and police. So the first thing is just to situate this whole thing in the context of, is this something government should be doing before we get to the issue of how well are they doing it or how badly are they doing it? And I thought I would bring this up with the students. And by the way, this isn't through Duke. This is kind of like offline summer stuff. I do these sessions called Morals and Markets for Students. Uh, and so the, their interest in it is really interesting to me because there's no credit for it. There's no obligation that they, that they take it. Uh, now, whether government does these things well or ill, well, we know they don't always judicial, judicially or militarily on police always do the right thing. And, and I would argue that when you expand the size and scope and power of government beyond those three functions, you not only start violating rights, you don't even do those three things very well. So in other words, you divert attention, money, effort, energy 
to other things, you know, associated normally with the welfare state. And to the extent the welfare state is generating citizens who are either ill-informed, uh, illiterate, innumerate, uh, uncivil, uh, it is not going to help, uh, even if government does focus on the police, uh, they're going to be overwhelmed, um, especially by particular groups who are treated that way. So. The, I, I, in many ways, I think the idea of defunding the police, while on the surface to advocates of limited government might be shocking, in a way, philosophically, I think it's good because it's so extreme. It's so fundamental a claim that it's a good time to bring up what the point of policing is and, um, and to go from there and to certainly look at why it might be done badly. Um, I, I've made the point elsewhere that in the realm of government failure, what I call government failure, because we're so used to thinking of market failure, you know, and then government comes in and fixes market failure. If government is supposed to do these three things, we can see failures all over the place. Like 9-11 could be seen as a failure of national defense. They were supposed to provide national defense and they didn't, right? What was the reaction to that, though? Not to defund the Pentagon. The, the reaction for good or ill was to upfund and create a whole new Department of Homeland Security, if you recall. And, and, and in many cases, like violate civil liberties with the, with the Patriot Act and all that we see through the TSA. And even in the financial crisis of 10 years ago, uh, you could have concluded that the problem with that was a massive government failure of artificially promoting home ownership. I mean, that's what Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and others were doing, right? And instead of concluding that and saying, well, that's what ruined the financial system, they also upfunded those. So they, they certainly preserved them and spended massive amounts of money. So it is, it's, it is odd that in this case, um, if there's a failure, and I think it was really minor, not to, to, to diminish too much the, the loss of life, but here, it's the complete opposite reaction notice. The reaction here Again, granted, it's a small fraction of the reaction, is to defund the police, not to say, wow, there's, there's a problem with policing. Maybe they're not getting enough training. Maybe there's not enough police out there anticipating criminal activity. So maybe we should upfund it and make sure the monies are spent well. It's a very odd dynamic in that regard. So that, that's how I look at it philosophically, and we can talk about the empirics of it. But the empirics of it, which I've studied in the last month or two, I'm no expert, by the way, on criminology or on the stats, but it isn't difficult to get your hands on it. And the numbers are just overwhelming that the quality of policing in the U.S. is very good. It's not systemically racist. Uh, and you could look at it very different ways, you know, as a percent of the population, what are certain minority groups? And then as a percentage of, say, robberies or homicides or interactions with the police and, and adjusted for those things there is actually less violence and brutality meted out against blacks and other minorities than against whites. And looking the other way in terms of violence against police, the numbers are overwhelming that way as well. Namely, police are something like 18 or 19 times more likely to be harmed by these minorities than the other way around. So we can talk about those. I don't want to go on too long, but that's, that's the basic way I look at it philosophically and empirically. Yes, well, and then also um, philosophically, we have a perspective on the issue of, of racism itself. Um, and Ayn Rand has talked about racism as the lowest, uh, most crudely primitive form right. 
of collectivism. Right. Um, share with us a little bit of, of your perspective on, on that. Well, that's a, a famous, uh, at least within the Ayn Rand readers, a famous 1964 essay written right around the time of the civil, the peak of the civil rights movement, the Martin Luther King speech, the Civil Rights Act. Yes, she said racism is a form of collectivism. And what is collectivism? Not looking at the individual, but rather the group therein. And the reason she, she thought racism was like the worst possible form and also almost like a crude, what she used to call it, because a barnyard form of collectivism, to look only at skin color and race and ethnicity and things like that. I mean, you can group people all different ways, right? You can say scientists or policemen or businessmen. And even then you can make mistakes like saying, you know, all policemen are racist or all businessmen are, are cheats. Uh, you know, and you wouldn't want to do that. But the problem with racism, she said, is not only is it a form of collectivism, which she was very much against, she also said in that essay, very interestingly, she said it did not, it's also a form of determinism. So now this is a little more technical term. And determinism in psychology is the idea that you are not the author of your own life. Uh, you don't have free will. You're, you're literally determined by your ancestry and you're either taking credit for things that aren't yours just because they're in your ancestry or feeling guilty. That can go, can go that way too. You can feel guilty for what ancestors did. But she said, this is just an injustice really to yourself and others to lump yourself into a group and then say you either have vices or virtues just dependent on that group. She said, no, it's what you do with your own life and the choices you make. Uh, she didn't use the word victimhood, but that essay all ha also has a lot in there that, that, that go to that concept, I think, where she's very much of the view that she should be self-reliant and independent and not be looking for others to rectify even past injustices, especially if they didn't commit them against you. So those are just some of the things that are in there. She talks about things like reverse racism. She does touch upon reparations even. So it's a fascinating essay, but she said something like this. She said, you know, you're going to get more racism in a world where collectivism is growing. So this is obviously a form of it, right? And she said the antidote to that is individualism. The antidote to that is, she actually said colorblindness. Now, you know, if you say you're colorblind today, the critics will say, well, that ipso facto makes you a racist. You know, how can you deny that you see color? And, and so even the, um, the ideal of saying, listen, we need to judge people on the content of their character, on their actions, on their statements, not on the color of their skin. Um, the fact that that alone is being resisted, this is the Martin Luther King type view, right? That is very troubling uh, to me, but it's, a, it's an essay well worth uh, reading. I, I think it's just titled racism. I don't even think it's on racism, but it's racism. And I think it's in the uh, virtue of selfishness. Yes, yes, cool. it is. Um, well, uh, getting back to uh, more of the, the, the looking at some of the statistics and, you know, granted that you're, this is not your uh, sphere, but you've been, um, you have been studying it and you've chosen yeah. two uh, readings right. wh where they're, they're, they are written by people that that is their field and that is right. their area of study, right. uh, including Heather McDonald's piece right. in the Wall Street Journal, The Myth of Systemic Police racism right. uh, and then also the piece in the new york times um cities ask if it's time to defund the police um and reimagine public safety uh yeah. 
tell us a little bit about why you chose those two readings and what some of the key takeaways um, are for you. Well, these are, you know, I try in these seminars I run for students not to uh, load them down with 30 page, you know, academic journal pieces, although those do exist and back up these more popular pieces. I thought I would pick the Heather McDonald piece and then the other one in the New York Times. The New York Times piece is more of a kind of a, an impression of what the general view seems to be, which is anti-police right now. Heather McDonald has been studying this for years, and I think her book is actually called The War on Police or The War on Cops. So she's definitely a specialist in this. She's been studying it for many years. If you want to read another account that's on the Heather McDonald side, John Lott, L-O-T-T, -T, has not only written a lot on uh, guns and gun violence and school shootings and things like that, but also the relationship between policing and crime. And I think one of his prior books is something like more police, less crime. So if you just invert that and say, wow, if we're going to move toward less police, we're going to get more crime. And is this something the defunders know or they don't know and they're advocating it anyway? It's, it's important to know that. The Heather McDonald piece called The Myth of Systemic Police Racism, she does cite many deeper academic studies. One of the most interesting coming from Roland Fryer who's an economist at Harvard, and he went and dug through the data looking for, and the data sometimes actually isn't very good, this might surprise you, Not a, the data isn't really collected in some cases in a pristine way. Anyway, he got his hands on the data he could, starting with interactions between the police and citizens, and then started categorizing it by race and things like that. And he's the one who first shocked the world, probably 2016, 17 or so, by issuing a study saying, I don't find any systematic racism um, uh, by cops. And um, I don't think it's really relevant that he's black, but that's one of the reasons you chalk the New York Times, Washington Post, and other people because uh, you know they see everything in terms of race. So they would be like particularly impressed, I suppose, if uh, a black person discovered this. I don't really look at it this way. I think any scholar can find find the facts. But um, so that's the Heather McDonald piece. I you know if you generally want a, an argument for. Um, it's not merely an argument for, but an analysis of, is there actually systemic racism? And can I read someone, you know, who's going to do an op-ed, but give me further studies to read, you know, without having to read them myself, I can go check her references and see whether that's what I did, actually. I went and checked uh, and started reading these 30-page uh, academic papers about the studies. And what she said is true. There is no evidence of it. Jennifer, I think philosophically, it might be interesting just to think about, I don't know how I describe this other than the visceral, concrete, human, I mean, it's definitely human, reaction to seeing, as we all did, horrific videos of brutality. Uh, and what the, how that occupies our mind versus dry background 30-page academic studies, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm actually sympathetic to the problem of people saying, don't tell me about all these studies. I can see with my own eyes that this is terrible, brutal, and inhumane. And I agree with that, but there's a real danger in jumping from that to all cops are fill in the blank. I mean, that is just basic, fallacious, hasty generalization, you know? And it, it's a kind of stereotyping that we're warned not to do with every other group in the world, which is true, 
you know, we shouldn't do that. All businessmen are cheats, all women are bad drivers. I mean, whatever, whatever kind of silly things we've heard over the years, you know, and you wouldn't want to do the same thing with cops. It's the same error uh, to do it that way. Right. So. Yeah, so, and um, I hear you on that. And also we want to hear from you, um, uh, people that are, are watching and that are, are participating in this, um, this exciting webinar. Um, so please ask us your question on the Zoom platform or send us uh, a message over Facebook and uh, I'd, I'd like to get to your questions. So um, Professor Salzman, you know, you talk about like what we see and our visceral takeaway from that. But yeah. one of the things that, that I see uh, and that that I have a visceral takeaway from is um, seeing the the violence and the deaths. Um, what's happened in in Chicago? Uh, what's been happening in some of these um, these areas where there is either a, a a police pullback or that's official or that is uh, not official? And then historically, of course, there's the famous example of um, the Montreal police strike in uh, on October eighth, nineteen sixty nine where the police were striking for just a totally different kind of work-related, we want better benefits, and what happened uh, on, over the course of, of that. So um, what, could you speak to that? What, what are some of the consequences of a, of a potential um, Ferguson effect, or you know, in this case, a, a Floyd effect of police pulling back, and, and how do we, we think about that? That's a good question. I think one of the vicious circles you can get into is spreading what is really a myth that there's systemic racism. But now imagine you're in a minority class and maybe you're younger and you're going to have, you're living in the inner cities and you're going to have, say, more interactions with the police. If your mind is pre-stocked with that myth, you're going to resent the cops more, you're going to resist arrest, all the things that contribute to some of the violent endings that occur. And that's really tragic. It's really a shame. Um, if, if, and, and by the way, the statistics show that as well, that you can break down the statistics to, you know, is there a shooting or violence with an interaction leading to a fatality in the case where there's no resistance to arrest? The numbers are almost zero. In other words, there's, there's, almost, there's no cases where a policeman just goes up to someone and berates them for a bit and then, and then brutalizes them. Um, but if you, as we saw in the case of Atlanta in the uh, Wendy's parking lot, if you engage with a uh, suspect for even for 20 or 25 minutes, as those police did, and then the suspects resist arrest, uh, you know, the, the police are kind of stuck with, well, what do we do now? We need to restrain the person. But then you restrain the person, then they grab your weapon. Okay, well, now what do we do now? Just walk away as he has our weapon. Then you go and chase him, but then they throw, he puts the weapon on you. Um, if the advice was that there is not systematic racism, but that you should try not to break the law, but then even if you're pulled over having not broken the law, and maybe you are pulled over for racist reasons, that's terrible, right? But even then, it's inadvisable to resist arrest. If you think you've been unduly uh, accosted or arrested, you know, bring it up when you get down to the station. Uh, I, I have also heard, by the way, that body cams on police, uh, we would think that the body cams are making the police behave better. The studies have shown that it actually makes the suspects behave better. So the hmm. suspects becoming more aware that they're being filmed, 
they don't act up as much. And so these are rare cases where you see a resistance to arrest in front of the cameras. Um, so that's another thing. Here's another thing I worry about in terms of vicious circle. There is evidence that the police are so berated and so maligned that they themselves are losing morale. Uh, that they themselves are saying, what is the point? What is it? It's not worth it. If I go in and try to uh, enforce the law, uh, it's all downside for me. I'm either going to be on film somewhere or I'm going to be uh, sued or I'm going to be fired or I'm going to lose my pension, you know. So some of them, I think, are silently shrugging, as Ayn Rand would put it, backing off. Uh, there's a phenomenon called the blue flu where they don't quite quit outright uh, probably because they don't want to lose their pensions, but they just don't show up to work because they're sick. So they say they're sick, they have the flu, and that's happening in many cities right now. And the crime rates are skyrocketing uh, to some degree in, in because of that. And so I worry about that because if the police are not only defunded, but not defended, and if they're derided, uh, and you don't, suppose you don't want to be a policeman, the pool of possible policemen to pick from, the quality has to go down. This phenomenon has already been seen, right? So suppose the original criteria was, um, you can't be a cop, you know, if you have a record, you know? So like when they were, when the pool was big and clean, so to speak, you say, well, okay, we're not gonna definitely train a cop who's had a record. But if you can't get enough cops, you start lowering the bar, you know, and you say, well, okay, you can have a record, but only if it's nonviolent crime, you know? And, but you could see that if this keeps going down, 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 and they're lowering the bar, so to speak, for hiring and training, the quality of the police is gonna go down and this is gonna get worse, right? It's going to, I don't think it's all that bad now, but it's going to get worse because the quality of the police themselves will go down, so. Yeah, well, okay, and I wanted to remind people to send us your questions for uh, Professor Salzman. Um, and uh, we'll try to get to a few of them. Um, we have one that came in, uh, uh, which is off, off the topic of, uh, of defunding okay. or defending the, um, the police. It is uh, from Vicki, who it's, she's actually asking about, she's asking about funding, but, but for a different, uh, of a different variety. She was um, asking about, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, funding um, and uh, loans, PPP loans for um, for businesses that have been prevented by lockdown policies for uh, in, in transacting their their business. Right. Um, she's saying she knows the Atlas Society didn't accept any of that funding. Um, I guess for Professor Salzman, do you have a perspective on on that in terms of? Um, businesses or nonprofits that don't pay taxes uh, taking uh, government bailout money? Yeah, I think it's very wrong to take out, take bailout money. Um, and um, I think it's especially wrong for those who, um, whose mission, who's, who's declared in a distinct mission is to be pro-capitalist for lack of a better description or be pro-liberty. And certainly for, for groups um, that have spent years advocating for more limited government, lighter taxes, less spending, deregulation, to participate in this um, huge bailout, to me, is just very wrong. And it's very, un, it's actually unjust. And it's, and it's a lack of integrity, I think. Now, some have argued that, well, 
government policy is actually harming us. Now, I don't deny that the, um, especially in the case of COVID-19, to me, it's not the virus that wrecked the economy. It's the government policy response to the virus. You probably agree with this, Jennifer, but, but the forced business shutdowns and the compulsory home, stay at home orders and the wearing a mask and other things, um, that has definitely damaged businesses. And I can see why some businesses might say, listen, I need restitution. But I, I think a distinction, and I think you've made it, you should talk on this maybe more than me, a distinction between a nonprofit who isn't paying taxes already, but then on top of that is basically receiving donor contributions. It's not like they're you know, open for business every day with the sales front, you know, trying to develop sales, but, the, but they're in the middle of chop, you know, and the, and the local anarchists won't let anyone shop in your store. That is a very different situation than some of these foundations. Um, so I am very troubled by it, but I also think it's a good opportunity to distinguish and differentiate your product and say, listen, not only are we advocating the right ideas, we're living them. We really mean it. And we're not just doing this opportunistically. We've said this in a, in a principled way. So I, I know you've made other points and I totally agree with them on issues like uh, maybe subsidiary secondary issues like strings attached. I mean, there are always strings attached uh, when you take money from the government and you lose your independence. Um, I think they even have a requirement, right, that if you take some money, you can't uh, let people go or reduce their hours or things like that. So, but, but more than that, I think it just damages the reputation, especially of those who've been advocating for less government involvement. Um, you, you, you can't be seen as a victim Many of them aren't actually victims. Um, and so that's the kind of distinction I make. Um, but I actually, I have seen what your society has done and I really kudos to you guys for standing up on principle and not taking bailout money. Well, thank you. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we, we've both been um, uh, in this sphere of, of trying to spread objectivist ideas for a long time and there are, um, you much longer than uh, I have. I've been in, in the private sector mostly, but um, that uh, that one of the hits on Ayn Rand is well, she was on the government, you know, dole, and so that is one of the, the sort of myths that you always hear. And I I think that it's important to distinguish between uh, someone who pays in pays taxes into a particular right. program. Great. In her Great. case, she paid uh, social security taxes into yeah. social security. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then she should not take the benefits that she already paid for. Great. To me, that would be a sort of an injustice, um, but, but also to distinguish between um, those in our, our donor uh, community Right. Um, who had businesses who were directly yes. harmed by a particular government yeah. policy right. prevented yeah. from doing their their business. So, yeah, your donors would be more directly affected and victimized, uh, say, than you might. But and so it indirectly hurt you. Uh, absolutely. Yet the issue of uh, when they claim when they would say, "Well, uh, Ayn Rand's a hypocrite because she took Social Security." You're absolutely right, Jennifer. She was never on the dole in the sense of taking unemployment money um 
And I wouldn't even call Social Security a dole to the extent that you pay in in taxes. In fact, in the early 80s, they started referring to those as, in, if you remember this, they started calling them entitlement programs. And I had a problem with that, I remember initially, because I didn't think it was right to feel you were entitled to be supported by the state. But then I realized some people were using it, I think the Reagan people actually were using it, because they wanted to distinguish, actually, oh. between cases where you paid in and you were basically due the money back at least, right? And Social Security itself actually doesn't pay back to you anything close to what you contributed to it, at least for certain subgroups or so. So that's a totally false charge against her for that reason. But but she's also being cited for an essay about scholarships. So, um, you know, if your parents are less wealthy than they would be otherwise, and therefore say can't afford to send you to college, uh, it came up, I forget when she wrote this, but it came up, well, is it okay to get a government guaranteed loan or a scholarship to get to college? Is that kind of a way to get restitution for taxes paid? And in some cases, she said yes. But I think none of that justifies, uh, I mean, certainly in today's context, that that would be used to justify taking bailout money in de amid the COVID thing to me is outlandish, actually. Well, particularly, I think now, you know, uh, I mean, one of the things that was remarkable to me coming back into the nonprofit uh, education sphere, yeah. the idea sphere, the think tank community yeah. Yeah. Um, over four years ago, having been out of it, you know, for 20 years, having been in, in the private sector at a time when there was so much spectacular disruption in how we educate and how we communicate yes. and how we right. persuade right. Uh, so that um, it just brought the costs way down right. yes. um, and opened yes. up just way new markets for how you can communicate. And, and, and we do that a lot at the Atlas Society on uh, social media, on platforms like this. So, um, so I, you know, I can, I can understand uh, that if you had a business or a, even a nonprofit like Meals on Wheels or whatever, you can't do yeah. your, you, you're being yeah. prevented from doing this. But in yeah. this day and age when technology makes it uh, really exponentially easier and it getting, getting more interesting, you know, day by day to be able to transact and persuade people. Um, I, mean, I mean, would you agree, Jennifer, that there's also incentive effects? Say, say a donor looking at your organization, some other organizations, they have options, right? And on the one hand, and, and they're doing this because they like the ideas being advanced by these um, foundations. Uh, they would look and they say, oh, you're taking government money? Okay, why should I give you money? Uh, apparently, you're getting money from the taxpayers. And on top of that, I'm not happy with you because you don't seem to be exercising the values that are important to me. It, of course, this can happen all over the spectrum, right? There can be others, like suppose, I don't know, the Pentagon sends out checks to some you know, left-wing group and their donors say, oh my God, are you taking Pentagon money? And oh, I'm disappointed with you and this is terrible. But um, I, I think it also takes away the focus of what's to be done to fix the loss of funds. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you say, OK, we're not going to reopen the economy, we're going to keep it closed and keep printing money and borrowing money and sending people's check, sending people checks or making them reliant on us and creating a dependency culture. Uh, uh, it takes away the pressure to change the underlying plot policy, right, which is actually bankrupting us. Um, I, I often think to myself, as this continues, I think 
if you were to just not know the details of what happened in 2020, if you did not know starting at, you know January 1 that there would be anything called COVID or that there would be riots in the streets or tearing down statues, right? But I said to you, there's going to be a Great Depression and nobody will have access to income. And then government will start issuing checks for so long and so repeatedly that you basically have a government guaranteed income. No one would believe it. They would think, what, Casio-Cortez is now president and we've implemented socialism overnight. And yet in steps, that's exactly what's happening. And, and there are people like Sanders and others who are saying, well, since we're writing checks, why don't we just implement a guaranteed government income for everybody permanently? So that, and I think there's also a kind of interest on the left in seeing what it's like to live under the Green New Deal. Now, you don't hear much about the Green New Deal anymore, right? But if you remember when it was introduced last year, it had features like we shouldn't really be flying on planes. We really shouldn't be, you know, doing this or that or eating burgers or this. That. And when you see today that the airports are empty and, uh, you know, the schools are empty, you know, it's almost as if this is the plan uh, for the Green New Deal, but it's in the form of COVID. Um, by the way, schools, I think people should really keep an eye in the coming weeks, really, on schools. If the schools remain closed, so will the economy. I'm really worried about this. I, I said to people about a month ago when they said, what do you think is going to happen? One of the things we did discuss is I said, it's really important to reopen the schools in September. It's really late August, right? That's when they open. Because the connection between your kids at school and your freedom to do your job is, is I mean, it's really inextricably linked. And I really worry that a delay in returning children and university students to school, but mostly secondary and younger kids, is going to completely continue to tank the economy. So the idea that there'll just be a decline and then a V-shaped recovery, there can't really be a V-shaped recovery if uh, the kids don't go back to school. And it sounds kind of pedestrian, but that's, that's I think, the logic of it, actually. Okay, we have a question here from Kate Jones, and she's bringing us um, in, back into sort of philosophic uh, territory. Um, and Kate asks, why do people tend to want to join groups or mobs of, of shared conditions rather than uh, have each individual remain independent, clans, kin, clubs, tribes? Um, so it's a, sort of a long question, but I think you get the gist. What dynamic accounts for this? How can we prevent hostilities from arising between separate and differing collectives? So it, I think it's a little bit of, about sort of tribalism. Where does it come from? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I, 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 you, we, you have to always start a, an answer like this by saying, you know, some groups are benevolent. Um, the, the idea that individualism is atomism is not true. It's, it's, it's a common mistake. I'm not saying you're making the mistake. Uh, but when we make the case for individualism, uh, we, we shouldn't deny that, you know, certain groups associate with one another for perfectly good reasons and purposes. They could be a cause, but even a business, when you think about it, is a grouping. Um, a social club is a grouping. A book, a re book reading group is a grouping. I think what you're getting at is what about bad groups? What about people who join groups for nefarious reasons, destructive reasons, the kind of reasons we see on television? I think these people really totally lack self-esteem. They really do. They, 
you could say they're ignorant and there's some of that as well, but they're very insecure and they lack independence. And then the root, if you know objectivism, the root of this is they really don't trust their mind. That's as basic and philosophic as I can get. If our mind is a source of survival, as Ayn Rand argued, if it's the source of both living and thriving, and if then you weaken that, however it's weakened, if you have teachers telling you your mind is impotent to no reality, or if you have teachers telling you, you know, if you learn too much, you're going to outperform other kids and you should feel guilty about that. Whatever it is that severs or weakens or erodes the power of the mind is going to make, especially young kids who are making it way in the world, it's going to make them very insecure. Um, I mean, it would almost be like, suppose you're thrown into a jungle um, and you're a civilized person actually, right? Uh, but with no weapons, no food, no nothing. I think they actually have reality shows that do this. But of course, there's a camera crew behind them and a whole catering group. But I'm saying really thrown in. That is the, and you would be terrified. You would think, I'm not going to survive. I can't craft a weapon you know, overnight and start defending myself. That's how I feel these, that's what it's, that, that's how I try to introspect and think that's what these uh, mobs and violent people must feel like, I think, that they feel like I don't have my, I don't have my tool at hand. They don't maybe not even know what the tool is, but they're not good at thinking. They're not good at thinking independently. What gives them a kind of pseudo self-esteem? Being in a group, being in a group that's saying the same things, chanting the same things, doing the same things, burning the same buildings. Um, that's the best answer I can give to you. I think, it, I think it verges so much on psychology, which is also not my field. I couldn't give you a full answer to it, but I, I think it's rooted in the philosophy that says your mind is impotent. And if that's true, you can't really get on in reality and you can't even judge people as to which groups you should join or not. Well, and I want to get to the question of uh, your beginnings in objectivism, and, and we'll do that in a little bit. But first, uh, we've got a great question here from Phil Coates. Great to see you. Um, and uh, where is the battle of uh, over the police likely to end up in the next year or two? Uh, there will be changes either bad or good. Uh, will some of the reform measures work, um, such as um, police no longer being immune from prosecution, or will they be walking off their jobs? Uh, will they be not enforcing the law because they're afraid of, um, uh, of being sued or uh, of a protest? If you're looking for a year ahead forecast, and of course this includes the election, uh, so maybe that will skew this a little bit. My own prediction is somewhat pessimistic. Uh, I don't, I'm hoping for a kind of, backlash would not be the word, but a, uh, a return to sanity where citizens rise up and say, defund the police, what are you talking about? This, we're for law and order. Uh, this is disproportionately this, the defunding and the de-escalation of police presence is disproportionately harming those lives you claim matter so much, um, but all lives were going to be affected by this uh, terribly. I think it's a very bad trend. I think in a year from now, it'll be worse than it is now. Now, will the violence be as bad? I don't know, but I don't see, I think there'll be fewer police. There'll be less funding for police. The crime rates will go up. 
And um, the idea, the problem I mentioned earlier of recruiting will get worse. It'll be harder to recruit and the quality of police will go down. I just, I just think it's a very negative trend and I think it's going to persist for a while. Uh, as to the election, uh, the, ironically, I actually think if Trump lost, the, con the conditions might improve. Not because Biden and others wouldn't want to defund the police, they're on record saying it. And, and Trump is on record saying, you know, I defend the police and we're not going to defund them and I'm for law and order and all that. But there is such an animus against Trump. There is such an irrational Trump derangement syndrome going at it that I actually think if, if the Democrats got in, they would not want to give trouble to the incumbent Democrat president. And all of a sudden things would be solved and all of a sudden things would be clearing up and all of a sudden the press coverage would say, well, I think things are, wow, it looks like things are improving. Trump's not here anymore. So uh, that's just a weird like paradoxical outcome that could occur. But I don't see, do you? I don't see anyone Heather McDonald and others are exceptions um, advocating for more funding for the police. And if reforms are needed in terms of uh, stopping or minimizing brutality, I, that's not the direction this is going. Was it New York that got rid of 600 plain clothes policemen? I mean, the plain clothes ones go out and just mingle among the population trying to preempt crime and bring in the necessary research, that's gone. And those kind of things, people aren't really aware of what they do, they only see the men in blue or the women in blue. Those kind of things will enormously undermine law enforcement. And, and, and the third thing I think is, I don't see anything in there of the kind I mentioned earlier, any kind of movement toward telling young kids not to fight with cops. If anything, the direction's the other way. Namely, I have a right to fight with cops now because I'm told they're all racists. By all, I mean, that's what systematic means or systemic, right? Sometimes you hear the word structural, institutional, um, systemic, all those words. Be very careful on the lookout for those words because it's saying all of them are, and the system makes them be so. Uh, that is a very dangerous, it's not only wrong, but it's just a very lethal idea to send out there, especially to young kids who uh, are more likely to come in contact with the police. Now, if they yeah. don't come, by the way, if they don't come in contact with the police, uh, as Jennifer mentioned, citing some of the Chicago statistics, if they don't come in contact with the police because the police are withdrawing or being defunded, it's not like they're not going to come in contact with each other. They will. They will, and the violence level between uh, people with no cops around will intensify, and that's terrible. It's terrible. It's a massive uh, loss of life. Uh, by the way, um, in that presentation, Jennifer, I don't know if you remember this, but I just went back and looked because the discussion is defunding. So I just mm -hmm. went and looked at the funding. I thought, well, I wonder oh, yes, what the, num yes. wonder what the numbers that. actually are. And it wasn't difficult to get the numbers. The Federal Reserve issues the numbers. So, you know, most policing and schooling and things like that is done at the state and local level, not federal, right? So you can look at FBI numbers if you want it. But I just went to the database for spending by state and local government in the US last 50 years. And the categories were law enforcement. They actually have a category called law enforcement. You can look it up at the Fed St. Louis. And the subsidiary accounts are police, courts, and prisons. 
All right. So I collected that data and charted it. And then the other two I picked up were spending on public schools, spending on healthcare, and spending on social welfare services, right? So you, if you know, the ones who are advocating defunding are also simultaneously saying, transfer, divert that money over to schools, healthcare, welfare, welfare services, right? Well, I don't have an, well, I actually do have it in front of me. Maybe you can see this. So here's the chart. If you look, the line that's going up the most is public schools. And the two lines below it, healthcare and social services. The, the three little lines down below are law enforcement. My theme is they've already been, been defunded. It, I mean, I don't mean funding isn't going up for law enforcement. I, I mean, relative to these other spending categories, um, police funding as in the basement here. So it's a completely different take, of course, on what's happening. And, and, and maybe the conclusion could be that there's not enough funding for the police. But actually, I think the problem is the top line. Mm -hmm. Top line is public schools, right? It's not the spending per se, but what I'm saying is if in those schools, anti-law and order ideas are being taught, then that is the real problem, that that there's massive funding of uh, teachers potentially teaching kids the wrong idea about what capitalism is all about, what America is all about, what the police are all about, what racism is all about. And if that's the case, we're looking at the wrong number. You know, it's not, it's not take the lowest number and lower it further. It's let's really investigate this top number and what is that money being spent on because it could be, I think, largely being spent on things that uh, exacerbate the problem instead of ameliorating it. Well, Neil um, Lohman uh, asks, he wants a copy of that fund of, of okay. the funding data and we will, we will get it to yes, you. Yes, I'll, I'll be glad to send you that, yes. Really something uh, that, um, that is, it was kind of shocking. Uh, but, you know, it also speaks to, as you're talking about that top line where it's just uh, going through the roof and yeah. um, that, that is funding for, for the public schools. Yeah. You cited earlier, you know, that, um, that uh, there are terrible consequences um, in terms of families being able to, to function and, and work in terms of the, the schools um, remaining closed. But at the same time, I mean, if there is a silver lining to this, is that um, these these that's where it starts. This is where the source yeah. is. Yeah. Where kids are being indoctrinated uh, with identity politics yeah. Yeah. and um, a social justice um, uh, agenda and uh, the church of, uh, of of global warming warming, and that is what's happening in the schools, and that just has consequences. So I I, I do think it'll be interesting as as kids are not. Uh, necessarily receiving that indoctrination and maybe they're going on to Khan Academy or they're being homeschooled and they're going to different options where we might see a, 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 a halt of the spread of a different kind of virus per se. One of, one of the ways that I describe it is, and I notice, is here's another way to differentiate the product, so to speak, who's more capitalist or not. Conservatives really aren't very good at this. So you notice the conservatives are very good about saying, wow, the schools are terrible and the schools are indoctrinating our kids and the schools are this and the schools are that. And I listen and I say, true, 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 true. Now, what are you doing? Their goal is, uh, you know, they'll say something like try to get on the school board or try to influence the textbooks. Notice what they're missing. 
This is public ownership of the means of instruction, which sounds like public ownership of the means of production, but it's the public ownership of the means of instruction of teachers, right? So the schools are owned and controlled by government, but that's socialism. I mean, socialism by definition is public ownership of the means of production and control, of course, right? Whereas capitalism is private ownership of the means of production. But that would include, capitalism has to include private ownership and control of the means of instruction, of the schools, of the, uh, and you know, that's no guarantee that the teaching will be good. But we all know that if the schools are predominantly socialist institutions, they're either going to be promoting socialist ideas or socialist you know, pay structures, or as you see these teachers who are not held accountable for bad teaching. I mean, that is just a standard socialist story, right? That socialist regimes basically ultimately falter and crumble precisely because they punish the able and the intelligent and bail out the opposite. So I don't think there's a fundamental enough uh, critique of the schools. They need to be heavily privatized. I know charter schools are something, but even charter schools are public schools. I think mm -hmm. they're really just public schools uh, with special carve-outs or something. But even there, there's an objection to having charter schools, right? So if people are looking for a more fundamental uh, solution, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say defund public schools instead of defunding the cops, but I'm almost there. I, I want the defunding, I want the funding diverted away from public schools mm -hmm. toward private schools. And it's not really difficult to do. This is not rocket science. It's not like, you know, coming up with a uh, vaccine for COVID-19. It's, there are many plans on the table from free market economists over the years to privatize education and it just hasn't taken hold. And uh, maybe the American people finally would see and say, wow, now we're seeing the fruits, the bitter fruits of years and decades of bad public schools, but I still think they don't know what to do about it. They still don't know where to send their kids, especially if you try to send your kids to a private school and you're paying for the public schools anyway, it's impossible. You're being double, you're, you're paying double. We've and got a couple still, of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we've got a couple because uh, we only have about a uh, little, about 10 more minutes. Um, uh, some, uh, some great questions. Uh, let's see, Jim Byrne and um, Arthur Holst uh, asking, what does the university system need to do to help uh, educate students on liberty? Um, and uh, uh, also Jim uh, saying, one could say the root cause of this issue is hijacking of the American educational system. How do we counter that? Um, and like John Galt and producers did an Atlas Shrug, do we abandon those um, municipalities and watch them fall into decay? So this is your, your field, you're an educator, It's a big question. I'm in no position being in a wonderful job at Duke and teaching. Yes, no it's called for no, defunding. I, of, I like I'm in no position to be saying, you know, surrender the universities or give up the universities or critique the universities for some good things they could be doing. They are doing it in some form. So uh, there's often been a bias uh, anti-university because it has a particular content that it's pushing, especially in the social sciences. But my view has always been, if you're really interested in the world of ideas, if you're really interested in the, the, the life of the mind, so to speak, study, go get a good degree, 
develop a good topic and go teach. Uh, that is the best way to do it, but uh, slinging arrows from outside inward isn't gonna help. When, I must say, when I'm in being in academia, the thing I most try to emphasize, which I think is fair enough to all sides, is two things. Diversity, that's something everybody wants, right? But I stress intellectual and ideological diversity. I don't want to be a racist. I don't want to be a genderist. I want to be focusing on a variety of opinions in intellectual matters. And secondly, objectivity. Now, this is really crucial. Um, and it's under assault. But if you say to a student, listen, uh, here's the syllabus, here's the material, here's what we're going to learn this semester, I implore you to be objective. And they'll say, what do you mean? I'll say, I implore you not to just resort to your feelings or other things or what your peer pressure groups are saying. Try to be as objective as possible in learning about this stuff and judging it for yourself. And that goes a long way, I think, toward improving the universities. I, I, you can't as an individual improve an entire university, but you can reach a lot of students by those two uh, points, diversity, objectivity. If you have students who don't want to do that, they're really not students. They're nearly not serious. Yeah, you know, another thing I would say is, I mean, there's what's going on in, in the university and what we can do within that context yeah. to, uh, to, to promote these kinds of messages. But in terms of what you know um what kinds of content kids are actually consuming yeah. um i mean that was one of the things that that to me was uh, amazing that um from the days that when i was at harvard to to now that you know the books are are just do not have the same place that they held um in education 20 years ago uh the graphic novel sections of uh of libraries and universities and bookstores have ex exploded so that's why at the atlas society you know we have our graphic novel the anthem graphic novel we're coming out with our second graphic novel we take yeah. all of these we animate yeah. them we yeah. look at what kids are, are, are consuming in terms yeah. of content and we create content that they want like our draw my life series where they uh, they are getting the messages, but it's in a fun, you know, kind of yeah. uh, dramatic way. So I, yeah. I mean, if you want to support, you know, kids getting that kind of message and alternate um, uh, messaging, then I'd say you know support uh, the the work of the Atlas Society. Support what uh, Professor Salzman is doing. It's also noticeable that um, that attention spans and time horizons have shrunk. Yes. And I don't know entirely what this is due to, but the idea of, of recommending to a student, you know, read this 350 page book and let me know what you think about it. Uh, people don't do that anymore. And that's troubling, especially if um, that's the only way you're going to get a sustained argument about something. Right. So they're so they're getting it in sound bites. I hate to say even bumper sticker approaches. And uh, that's why you get the chanting and stuff like that in groups. It's, it's a very concrete bound, almost gnat-like, and that's a problem to, to face students and try to expand their, not just their awareness of different ideas, but just to, you know, prolong study of something without the distractions of social media and PDAs and things like that. That's a real challenge. But if I say too much of this, Jennifer, I'm going to sound like an old man complaining about, you know, the good old days when we used to uh, read physical yeah. books. 
Well, the, the things are what they are, you know, yeah. and, and Ayn Rand right. had the famous analogy of crash landing onto, you know, yeah. a, a, a planet and looking around. And, and so, I mean, you know, if one was um, educated in a time where people were reading 300, 400 page books and now they find themselves in this time, that's yeah. kind of the, the perspective that we take at the Outlet Society, which is how are, you know, the, the kids, what are they consuming and can yeah. we give them, even yeah. if it is um, a sort of an abbreviated, right. more fun, more funny way to, to yes. get the content and then hand them over, you know, to no, uh, I think professors also. I think that's I think that's the right approach. So you, you go at them like you look out and say, well, how are you actually learning now? And if it's just something like, well, I just scan it on my phone, you're like, okay, let's start with scanning on your phone and then whittle down the students who, no, I want, give me more answers. You got a deeper answer yes. than that? Can we sit and talk yeah. about it? Can we go, they'll pretty soon will whittle down to, but there will be a group of really serious students and adults, yeah. it's not just students. And no. they'll be very intelligent and very powerful. And I've met them, they do exist. And that is one of the things that that uh, Professor Stephen Hicks in the waterfall program that, that yeah. we have at the Atlas Society website, where there is a much deeper dive, yeah. so that um, yeah. that that we can go from wow that was a cool video that was the cool right. meme yeah. or whatever, and then you have a link to it to a deeper dive, and of course we have the Atlas Advocates and the Atlas Intellectuals, which people yeah. can can join. So, so we're about to wrap up. So speaking of Atlas, yeah. um, uh, and who is John Galt? I, I, I've been, you know, I like when I'm eating, I save the very be best thing oh, for last. Yeah, okay, don't, yeah, don't like take my plate away too soon. So this was the question that I wanted to, to ask Professor Salzman and get to sort of his, uh, his origin story, if you will, within objectivism and his journey and how he first uh, heard about Ayn Rand and and what what brought him to where he is today. Well, I'm not, I don't think I've ever heard quite heard it put that way, an origin story, but I like it. Okay, so this is uh, 40 years ago. So 40 years ago, I was uh, uh, 19, 20 years old. Okay, so now I'm in my parents' basement board and my father collected books and uh, my father was conservative, so when I was raised, this was outside of Boston, I had a kind of environment where business was respected, but they were also Catholic and religious. And anyway, so dining room table discussion I got was, you know, America's a good country generally, and, you know, what's wrong with Nixon and, 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 and Carter and Ford? Those are the presidents of the time to show you how old I am. Okay, but I see a book called Capitalism. And I pulled the book out and my literally, I thought I was reading about, I don't know why I was interested in this at the time. I thought I was going to read a book about how factories work. That is how narrow my focus was. I thought that's what I thought capitalism was. I'll read this book and I'm just curious about how factories and the economic system work. And when I opened it up and it said, I think the opening line is something like, this is not a treatise on economics. This is, this is a book of essays about the moral case for capitalism. And I thought, what? I couldn't believe it. What I used to say at the dinner table when the riots were going on in the 1968 and the 70s and stuff like that, my father would say one of two things. People are rotten or uh, they're miseducated or they're not religious enough. So can you imagine halfway through capitalism and the unknown ideal, it says, what's the chapter called conservatism and obituary? 
So that was a real eye-opener too. Not only am I reading this book, but I'm reading an argument for why conservatives are not good at defending capitalism. And it was an answer that I guess I kind of had been asking my father for years. Like, if your arguments are so good, why is there anti-capitalism in the streets? I used to actually say to him, I'd come back from church and I'd say, that sermon was just denouncing rich people and denouncing money-making. And isn't that what you do? I mean, he wasn't rich, but he was a businessman. And he just had no answers. So that's my origin story. There's a long history after that, but I immediately just started reading everything. But that was the opening, Capitalism, uh, the Unknown Ideal. That's interesting because in there are uh, there are some there I, you are in the minority I, I at least I kind of feel anecdotally in terms of people that that oh, first yeah. sort of got her nonfiction yeah and then went on right. to read read the fiction so uh, so well we will we'll have to have that conversation and I want to hear the rest about the rest of your history within objectivism I know we have a couple of trustees including Jay Laperqua hey Jay. Is, is watching who's been uh, following your work for many, many years. Oh, nice, and so, okay, great. Yeah, great. so I'd love to uh, maybe uh, get you on one of our happy hours that we have with our trustees and some of great. our uh, top donors. And I want to uh, remind everybody we're going to have um, our next uh, The Atlas Society Asks with uh, our senior scholar, Professor Stephen Hicks, and also Marion Tupi. Um, uh, next week. So please sign up for that. Um, ask your questions uh, early so that we can get to all of them. And, uh, and thank you all of you for joining us. And thanks to those of you who um, have supported the Atlas Society and, uh, and have believed in, in what we're doing and, and supported our decision not to take um, to take bailout money and makes it possible for me and for, um, Professor Salzman to, to talk to you in this kind of format. So we really appreciate it and we'll see you next time. Can I thank just you. say, Jennifer, quickly, thank you yeah. so much for inviting me. Thank you for the Atlas Society and all its donors. I really had fun, I appreciate it. Hope we do more work together in the future, this is great.